Hi, this is John with Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've downloaded this week's message. Our online ministry has enabled people from all over the world to access our weekly teachings. We're so grateful for you, whoever you are and wherever you are. For all things Prodigal, download the Prodigal app at your app store. And if you consider Prodigal Church your home, would you consider donating monthly at our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Thanks again for listening online. Now let's dive right into this week's teaching. Sarah and I were married for seven years before we had our son, Dex. We were really used to doing whatever we want. Uh, we were used to sleeping through the night. We were used to only worrying about what we were gonna eat that day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Before we had a kid, when we were at a grocery store and someone else's kid was going crazy, throwing a big old fit, big old tantrum, I would kind of giggle to Sarah and say, well, how about that? Now, I intercede for those parents. Before we had a child, I never had to worry about what Sarah was going to say in front of strangers. One of Dex's first words was sit. And he was still getting used to kind of the volume of his voice and controlling that. And so he would always say, sit, sit. And he would just use a lot of authority when he said it. And when he was a toddler, we were walking um, into Tilly's at River Park. And I kind of holding the Dex's hand and I, I hold the door and a person in a wheelchair kind of goes right past us. And before I can kind of distract Dex at all, he points right at them, right in their face and goes, sit, sit. I was mortified. Uh, before Dex, I didn't have to worry about Sarah and I being seated at, by a hostess at a restaurant where, and the hostess says, this is where you'll be seated. And then he points at the hostess and says, sit, sit. There was a big transition period in having a kid. Less sleep, less me time, less money, less quiet. It was quite a transition. The book of Malachi is located at a point of transition as well. The book of Malachi is this transition link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I think a bit of background is in order. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but the, the name Malachi means my messenger. And Malachi was written about 400 years before the time of Jesus. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they were called by God to challenge the faith of the settlers returning to Jerusalem from Babylonian exile and captivity. Uh, Mike Malachi addresses the profane and corrupt character of the religious people of his time, his people's disobedience, the non-payment of tithes, and a lack of sympathy and justice towards the poor. Malachi is the last of the old and the anticipation of the new. After Malachi, the voice of prophecy will cease in Israel up until the time of John the Baptist, 400 years later, to announce the arrival of the promised Messiah, Jesus. And we have been working our way backwards through Malachi these past couple of weeks. We started with the end, and now we have arrived at the beginning. There have been some harsh words of judgment. But this is how we begin. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi. I have always loved you, says the Lord. God won't speak for another 400 years. And what does he want his people to chew on? I have loved you. 
The next chapter he says that I'll splatter manure on your face and that I'll throw you in a pile of manure, but that's chapter two. What he begins with is not judgment, but love. One of the men who most influenced famous evangelist and pastor, D.L. Moody, was a young preacher by the name of Henry Morehouse. He once preached for Moody for an entire week using the same text every night, John 3.16. The preaching of Morehouse was very different than his own. Instead of preaching that God was behind people with a double-edged sword trying to hew them down, he told them that God wanted every person to be saved because he loved them. D.L. Moody said of his preaching, I didn't know God thought so much of me. It was wonderful to hear the way he brought out the scripture. He went from Genesis to Revelation, and he preached that in all ages, God loved the sinner. In closing the final service of his sermon series, Henry Morehouse said this, For seven nights I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, and this poor stammering tongue of mine will not let me. If I could ascend Jacob's ladder and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, to tell you how much love God the Father has for his poor, lost world, all that Gabriel could say is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This message, this love of God, is the constant and central message in the scriptures. We're not surprised, therefore, that the prophecy of Malachi begins with this affirmation. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you in Hebrew is, I have loved you and I love you still. It's continuous. What a great way to begin slash end our study in the book of Malachi. God declares, I have loved you, and I love you still. It's so simple. It's so uh, elementary, and it's so profound, and it's so true, and we barely scratch the reality of this conviction that God has loved us and loves us still. Some, some of you watching this now, it's all you need to hear. God declares to you, I love you. I have always loved you. Not long ago, I was hanging out at a coffee shop with someone from our church, and they told me that it took so long for them to realize that God loved them. And once that sunk in, they were changed. Do you feel unworthy, and therefore you refrain from God's embrace? Do you feel guilty and try to make up for your mistakes with good deeds? Do we live unchanged, thereby denying the power of God's love? How do you respond to it? I'm convinced that the truth that we are loved by God is more transformative in someone's life than any law in the Bible. Now, I'm going to be vulnerable with you all right now, okay? We're friends, right? Every pastor, every preacher, they, we all have some blind spots. Every pastor has things that they're good at, and things that they're not so good at. And a fair critique on me would be something like, I'm not hard enough on sin, but I speak too much about God's love and not enough about his wrath. 
God is a God of love, that's great, but he is also a God of wrath, a God of judgment. You can't just pick and choose the nice parts of God. And I just want to be honest with you. I don't think it's a fair critique, okay? I don't. Uh, it's not that I'm being weak on sin. It's just that sin management, condemning certain sins, or telling you each week to do better, and to do this and not this, it doesn't change anybody's hearts. It might change your behavior for a period of time, but it won't change your life. Sin management doesn't work. The truth that God loves you and has always loved you, that does work because it changes from within. And in my opinion, this is the best way to follow Jesus. Look at Luke 4, verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Not long later, Jesus is kicked out of the synagogue and nearly thrown off a cliff. Why? Well, in part because he claimed to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That's part of it. It's also because Jesus left out a key part of Isaiah's prophecy. You see, Jesus is holding the Bible. And he is in a religious setting similar to the ones we have on Sunday mornings. And he has this Bible in his hands. It wasn't like our Bible. It was scrolls, the Hebrew scriptures, handwritten on them. And he is handed the scroll of Isaiah, which is actually the longest book of the Bible. Okay, it's 66 chapters. The book of the Psalms has more chapters, but actually the book of Isaiah has more words and pages in it. So in the synagogue that morning, Jesus walks up and he's given the biggest scroll. And there were no number systems back then. There was no chapter and verse, okay? It was just a bunch of Hebrew words with no vowels, okay? This massive scroll. And he goes to chapter 61 of 66. So he didn't just go to the very end. That's easier to find. No, he goes five chapters before the end. And remember, again, just Hebrew words, just a bunch of consonants on pages. Uh, and actually, there was no pages. It was this long scroll. So he finds Isaiah 61. And here it is, but notice something. Notice what Jesus leaves out. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Sound familiar? But then verse two, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Did you see it? Jesus stops and folds up the scroll right where it gets kind of wrathy and judgy. And the day of vengeance of our God. He leaves that part out. Jesus was kicked out of the synagogue for fulfilling this prophecy and for being a grace preacher, for picking and choosing 
the nice and loving parts of the Bible and leaving out the wrath. This picking and choosing doesn't seem to be very Jesus-like Jesus. Now, I believe that all scripture is God-breathed and so does Jesus. And there are some parts of the Bible that speak of wrath and judgment. Okay, remember chapter two, right? This is the, only the first verse of Malachi. But what I'm trying to say is, is that in Malachi, God burst forth onto the scene with this stunning and beautiful announcement that God loves us. And he has always loved us. And we're supposed to revel in that. Do you marvel that you are loved by God and that you have always been loved by God. And Jesus is the fullest expression of this. this uh, he's the fullest expression of, I have loved you. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God was not like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but now we do. Let's continue our passage. Verse two, I have always loved you, says the Lord. But you retort, really? How have you loved us? We see this a lot in Malachi. God speaks the truth, and the people are like, what? Huh? How? God declares, I have loved you, and the people respond with, really? How? Now, why do they question God's love for them? Well, we go to history for the answer, okay? This is important. Stay with me. Short timeline of Israel's history. In roughly 2000 BC, we have the calling of Abraham, and God calls a people to be a blessed but to be a blessing. And then his grandchildren become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they end up in Egypt enslaved by Pharaoh and God raises up Moses in roughly 1500 BC. And he says, let my people go and they leave Egypt. And then in 1000 BC, 500 years later, God blesses the nation immensely under King David's rule. A hundred years later, the nation is divided. We have Israel in the north, Judah in the south, in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed by Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And then 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is destroyed and exiled in Babylon. But then in 519, Judah is allowed to come back. And then 120 years later, Malachi is called as prophet to Judah. So this is the people's history. This is what they know. So the people that Malachi is addressing felt that God had deserted them and let them down. How could he now say, I have loved you? Why are they questioning God's love? Because in that moment, Israel is weak. They're broke. They're oppressed by nation after nation. If God really loved them, why aren't they on top of the world? Why aren't they the ones enslaving other nations? Why are they themselves the ones that are enslaved? Primitive Israelites, questioning how God loves you when things aren't going well. I'm so glad that that's something that people struggled with way back then, but we never do now. Come on, ever been there? I was there just this past week. It is those moments when you feel, well, I know God loves me, but it doesn't really feel like he loves me right now. Things aren't going very well. If God loves me, why am I broke? Why am I single? Why do I have health issues? In the opening verses of Malachi, God declares, I love you and I have always loved you. And our response is often the same as Malachi's audience 2,400 years ago. Really God? How 
Do you love me? Primitive Americans, primitive Californians, wherever you're listening to this from, we're not so different after all. We're just like the ancient Hebrews. Now, what is the correct response to God's stunning and beautiful announcement that he loves us and that he has always loved us? The correct response is to stop what we're doing and run into his arms. And as you are running into his open arms, guess what happens? The weight of sin in our lives is lifted. We become more Christ-like. We're not sinless, but we do sin less. In Christ, the power of sin is broken. It's true. So how should we respond to God's love? The, the, the love of God that has always has loved us and always will. We stop whatever, whatever it is we're doing. We run into the open arms of God. Someone once asked God, how much do you love me? And God stretched out his arms and died on a cross and said, this much. God is love. I remember hearing the gospel as a teenager and falling in love with Jesus. See, back then, when I was 14, fitting in, being liked, those were the things that really mattered. And then a friend took her own life, and the things that mattered didn't matter anymore. Now, instead of the question, does she like me, I'm asking the question, does God exist? Instead of the question, who's going to be there, I'm asking the question, how can a good God allow such pain in this world? I was parched, searching for something to quench my thirst. In those days, it was me moving, longing for something to move in me. And then I walked into a church gymnasium on a Sunday morning and I sat in a metal chair and the pastor told a story about a mom, a mom whose house caught on fire and it happened at night and through screams and sirens from the fire trucks outside, everyone in the house ran out of it. The family gathers on the front lawn. The mom realizes that their four-year-old is still inside and the mom rushes back into the house that is engulfed in flames. The fireman says, stop it, it's too dangerous. But the mom breaks through the door, rushes to his room, picks up the boy while her own hair catches on fire, rushes out to the lawn where her boy is safe and she is severely burned. And then the pastor said, Jesus ran into the burning house for you. And as the pastor closed his sermon, he shared the gospel, the good news. Jesus loves me and he always has. Jesus died for me. That the God of the universe knew me, knew what I was going through, was big enough for my questions, was big enough for my doubts, was big enough for my tears, was big enough for my pain, and I was inspired. And in that church gymnasium in 1995, I made a decision to follow Jesus. And 28 years later, 
I still picture Jesus like that mother. See, there are images that help us to understand the infinite. Like God can never be contained by words or metaphors. He's so much bigger than that. But they help us, us as tiny little humans, to understand the divine or to begin to understand the divine. What image remains for you of God? The past 28 years as a Christian, I have read, I have heard, and been given lots of images of what God is like. God is the judge. God is all-powerful. God is the boss. God is the good angel on your shoulder. And those images of God have certainly brought conviction. They have brought guilt. They have brought behavior changes in my life. But they didn't change me. Jesus did. And I am convinced that it is through love that lives are changed, not through guilt or coercion or judgment. And as followers of Jesus, we would do well to dwell on the image of Jesus as burned mother. It's still true today. Following Jesus is about love. This image of a loving, attentive, sacrificial parent really is such a beautiful metaphor to help us grasp the love of God. And it's what Jesus himself refers to God as Father. In 2002, I saw the movie John Q starring Denzel Washington. The movie centers on a man whose nine-year-old son is in desperate need of a life-saving heart transplant. When he discovers that his medical insurance won't cover the costs of the surgery and alternative government aid is unavailable, John Q. Archibald takes the hospital emergency room hostage in a last-ditch attempt to save his kid. I want to show you the most powerful scene in the movie. And in watching this movie 21 years ago, it had this similar impact on me as that of the mother rushing to save her child from a burning home. Check out the scene. Without a new heart, he's not gonna make it. Okay. Take mine. What? You heard me. Take my heart and you put it in Mike. Oh, man, you done lost your damn mind. You can't be serious. You bet I'm serious. I'm dead serious. Oh, my God. Wow. Man, that means you'll be dead. And my son will live. John, you can't do this. It's the only way. No, you don't understand. Physically, you can't do this. Yes, I can. I kill myself. You open me up, you take my heart. It's perfect. Man, that's just crazy. No, no, we can't just remove your heart and put it into Michael's body. John, there are too many unknowns. Matching a donor and a recipient is extremely complicated. There are several critical tests that have to be taken. Like what? Cross matches for blood type, chest cavity measurements. If both blood tissues are not completely compatible... Come on, I know all about compatibility, no. okay? We've been tested up the wazoo. We're both B positive, our tissues match, his heart's three times the size of a normal heart, so mine will fit. You know damn well we're compatible. It's out of the question. Too risky. No. Doc, I'm telling you, he will make it. Can't do it, John. No. So what? So if I'm laying on the floor dead, you're not going to take my heart and put it in him to save his life? You'll let two people die instead of one because of a technicality? You know what? I think what John is trying to do is right. Me too. 
I think it's so brave. It's brave, but what do you think Mike would want? What about your wife? Mike's too young to know what's good for him. I'm his father. It's my job to protect him. Besides, Denise would do the same thing. John, look. I know what's happening to Mike is bad, man. Matter of fact, it's the worst. But killing yourself ain't gonna solve a damn thing. Sometimes you just gotta let go and let God. Just accept it, brother. Accept it? Except what? Except what? That Mike is going to die. No. No, I don't accept that. Ever. No, I reject that out of hand. I mean, look, he... All right, he's a patient to you, I understand, but if you... He's a good kid. I mean, he's... He, he, he loves bodybuilding. He's, he wants to be a bodybuilder. Can you believe that? And he, he's funny. He's, you'd like him. You'd like him, Doc, if you got to know him. I do like All him. All right, then. Then please, I'm just begging you. Step outside the room. I'd like to, John. I really would. But what you're asking crosses the line. It is completely unethical. So what? I'm, I'm not. I'm crossing the line. You're crossing the line. The whole damn system crossing the line. Who cares? Maybe you don't understand what I'm talking about. All right? I don't give a damn. My son's gonna live. Maybe you guys haven't figured that out by now. I'll do whatever I gotta do for him to live. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna shoot me if I don't operate? No. I'm gonna kill myself. All right? Let's just see what happens. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? He needs a donor. Somebody's got to die in order for him to live. I'm his father, it's me. All right. In the movie, a heart from a deceased donor arrives before John Q follows through, and the life of his son is saved. The final scene is John's trial for attempted murder and armed criminal action in that emergency room. But in the news, it was the unjust healthcare system that was actually on trial. And as he leaves the courthouse, his healthy son yells, Dad, thank you. God says to you through the prophet Malachi, and God says to you, through the movie John Q. And God says to you, through a 42-year-old pastor in Central California, I love you, and I always have. God, I pray that the truth of your love transforms us, that we would be different, that sin management and guilt and conviction can bring about positive change in our lives, but they won't change our lives, but your love does. So let us be filled with that to the brim and to overflow in Jesus' name, amen. We wanna thank you so much for joining us online at Product of the Church Fresno. Next week, we got something special for you. I can't wait. Hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace in Ukraine.